This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. My name is Harry Helling. I'm the executive director here at the Birch Aquarium at Scripps. I want to welcome everybody to the Jeffrey B. Graham Perspectives on Ocean Science um, talk. We have a few minutes where we're going to t- chat informally before we start the official TV program. So I, I was thinking, the last time we met, just a month ago, I think I was telling you we had just experienced this incredible tornado warning, the first time I'd ever experienced one, and we had to evacuate the aquarium, and the irony was we evacuated everybody into our climate change exhibit. I thought that was kind of <laughs> ironic. Today we have 85-degree weather. It's the exact opposite in the middle of February, and I was thinking... You know, thank goodness it's sort of changing and unpredictable because for those of us who are in the lecture series, right, that's a good good thing. We have ongoing um, opportunity for many lectures trying to figure out what on earth is going on. It is my great pleasure to introduce our speaker for this evening, Adrian Borsa. Adrian is a researcher at the Institute of Geophysics and Planetary Physics at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. He took an atypical route, however, to science, beginning with a BA in government, an MA in international relations, and an early career in international business focused on Japan and the United States. He received his PhD from Scripps Institution of Oceanography in 2005, was posted at the U.S. Geological Services during his postdoc, and moved then to Boulder, Colorado in 2008 to take a management position within NSF's EarthScope program. He returned to Scripps to full-time scientific research in 2012. Adrian's work aims to describe how the shape of the Earth's surface is changing at timescales of seconds to decades and to link observed changes to geophysical processes associated with phenomena ranging from earthquakes to climate change. His expertise includes the collection and analysis of data from many sources, including permanent and mobile GPS sensors, airborne LIDAR, and satellite altimeters, all aimed at observing how the Earth changes over time. We're very fortunate tonight to have Adrian here to talk about his groundbreaking research. Please join me in welcoming Adrian for his talk entitled, When the Rains Fail, the Mountains Rise. Well, it's wonderful to be here. It's a very exciting time for the aquarium. And uh, as a researcher here at Scripps, I feel it just as much as you do. Uh, today, I will be talking about uh, a new area of inquiry. And I hope that by the end of the lecture, you will uh, understand this somewhat cryptic title, you know, When the Rains Fail, the Mountains Rise. It was actually coined by one of my collaborators, Duncan Agnew. Um, I want to point out Science is not an individual pursuit. It takes many people. In this case, it was a team of three of us working, uh, and Scripps is a wonderful place to do science. We have so many people, so much talent across earth sciences and ocean sciences, so if you take an unusual line of inquiry, there is somebody there who is ready and willing to, to help out. So to get into this, I would like to actually uh, take you to one of Earth's deserts, This is a a shot from space. Uh, What's special about this is not only that it is our desert. So we've got San Diego down here where we're sitting right now, Los Angeles, the Bay Area, uh, and then right here, the Central Valley. But also, 
two and a half percent of the world's economic output comes from just a 30-mile strip along the coast here. And when you think about this, this economic juggernaut that we're part of and, and potential disruptions to it, the things that we and perhaps most of the world think most is the seismic hazard. So I've plotted the, the major seismogenic faults here, uh, San Andreas running through, and each one of these is a percentage that gives you an, um, the forecast probability of a magnitude 6.8 earthquake or larger over the next 30 years. And if you add up all the probabilities, you get a probability of more than 99% that we're going to get an earthquake that size somewhere in California. So certainly, seismic hazard is important, and we think about it a lot. There is another hazard that only comes up every 15, 20 years when we have a major drought, and that's the one related to water security. And for that, I want to take you not along the coast, but here to Las Vegas. Um, with Lake Mead next to it. Uh, I like to think of Las Vegas as maybe the most improbable city in the United States. That's uh, not why you think. It's because you have two million people in a place where there should not be any people. There's a small water supply sitting in the mountains right behind Las Vegas, and that's it. So if Las Vegas did not have Lake Mead, essentially there would be no Las Vegas, there'd be no gambling, there would not be any of this. Turns out that it's probably no coincidence that Las Vegas legalized gambling the same year that the Hoover Dam started construction. So essentially, you don't get this without this. <laughs> so here's Las Vegas, a little bit more perhaps uh, 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 familiar look, you know, the western United States. And we're going to focus in right here. Here's the metropolis of Las Vegas and Lake Mead, a very large lake. It's the largest human-made reservoir in the United States. 88% of Las Vegas' water comes from here, which is a wonderful thing, but it can also be a bad thing. It comes from here. So this is Lake Mead, take, shot taken about a year and a half ago. It's not changed much since then. The lake level is down at the point where it's almost beyond where it can actually generate power. So this is a, a tremendous, tremendously bad situation for Las Vegas, also for Phoenix, and a lot of cities, including us. We get water from the Colorado River, and it's stored up here. This is what Lake Mead should look like. This is the scene, as you can see from the cars. It was back in the 80s sometime. And I just pulled this data from the uh, Bureau of Land Management. This is volume of the lake over time, and this is the, when it finally filled up and peaked. Actually, down here was when they then started filling Lake Powell, which filled up. And then since then, we had this long rise, a peak in about 1983. And then we went along. And here we are at the bottom. We've been in a 15-year drought in the Colorado Basin. So the drought that we think about, our California drought that we're rightly concerned about, is just a little blip here at the end. So I want to take you now from this, this sort of larger picture. What, what's going on here in the, in the West, in California in particular? And for that, I'm going to now go back another satellite photo. It'll be a slightly different perspective. And what we're looking at, to orient you, here's San Francisco and San Francisco Bay, the Sierra Nevadas with Lake Tahoe here. And all these reservoirs that are running along both the top and the bottom of the foothills. So what happens in a normal year, we get massive snowpack building up in the Sierras in the spring, winter. And over the coast course of the melt, 
That snowpack is captured by all these lakes here and then further down. As the summer comes, these lakes then let the water through to the Central Valley, the big agriculture that we have, and of course, uh, San Francisco, Silicon Valley, and quite a bit goes down towards us. I will take you now to Lake Oroville, which is one of the lakes here in the foothills. It's a large one. And I want to show you a scene of Lake Oroville in 2011. So this was a time when, I don't know if you remember this, there was actually quite a bit of rain, including down in San Diego, but particularly up in Northern California, all the lakes up there were bank full. Here's Lake Oroville three years later. And you can see going back that not only is this lake massive, but the amount of water loss is also consequently large. And, and lest you think that this picture is just I cherry-picked one lake, you can go to almost all of them. This is Folsom Lake. Uh, I'll show you that. Same kind of thing. So these lakes are actually part of California's water storage and distribution system. This is a phenomenal engineering work. There are reservoirs up and down the foothills of the Sierras and canals delivering this water up and down. So the idea behind this is take water that's falling in the northern part of the state where there's a lot of water, ship it south to, not quite here to San Diego, but close. Actually, get down to Los Angeles at least. And then store water in all these reservoirs in times of, of plenty for times of need. So you think, should we be upset? I mean, look at this system's broken. I mean, we, we're, we're, in, we're in trouble. However, it, system's actually working exactly as it was designed. I mean, it's doing what it's supposed to do. It's just we've been in such a deep drought for so long that it's been stressed to uh, essentially its capacity. And you and I and our uh, fellow citizens have not uh, ignored this. In 2014, we passed seven, a $7.5 billion water bond most of which is going to, uh, to, to build out the water distribution system. So we are taking notice, both uh, just what we see on TV, but also with our pocketbooks. And then even more recently, all of us have been part of a mandatory water rationing. And we've done a tremendous job. I think it's something like you know, over 20% water savings in San Diego that hasn't stopped our, our uh, fellow citizens in San Francisco from sniping at us, though. We missed our water conservation goal by maybe a percent or something, but this was a, a, a big story up there. So this leads to this question, this, this broad question, sort of where is the water? And I like to think of this, it's like money. When you've got a lot of money, you kind of don't care. Maybe you spend a little here or there, it's, it's fine. But when you don't have any money, you start paying a lot of attention to where it is, where it's coming from, how much you might have. Water's exactly the same way. So I'm gonna take you through some water accounting. I'm not a hydrologist, but uh, I've been talking to quite a few of them. This is how they think of the hydrological system. So we have a number of, of storage sort of reservoirs uh, from the top to the bottom, snowpacks and glaciers, those we know well. In fact, vegetation holds quite a bit of water, especially in the Amazon. Surface water, all these lakes, reservoirs, natural and human-made. Soil moisture is a very important component. Quite a bit of soil, water is just sitting up in the first several feet of soil, and then groundwater. So groundwater is, is everything that's essentially at the water table and below. And all of these total up to something called terrestrial water storage. Um, this is the technical term. Um, you'll see this a couple times in the talk. So here's the situation. Vegetation water content, not very much water there. We, don't have to, we can ignore it. Surface water, 
We know it very well, in fact. It's well-gauged throughout the United States. Soil moisture we have from models that take in rain, uh, look at evaporation. The problem is over here. Groundwater and snowpack are really hard to measure, both because it's expensive to get the sensors in there, drilling a well or putting in a snow pillow, but also because these, these things are highly variable. So you know, a measurement you make here may be very different than one you make uh, a couple miles away. So these are hard to measure, very important for our, our storage. These are the places where we hold the water. It's where we bank our water. And then looking at all of this together, sometimes if you know your total, you can back into your other uh, your, your components. There are some low-resolution measurements made of this total by a satellite. It's called GRACE satellite. It's a NASA satellite that's orbiting at 600 kilometers. And the problem is it's a phenomenal mission. And it's got global coverage. It just doesn't have very good resolution, either in, in time or space. And the hydrologists need something better. So I want to take you to something better, uh, completely unexpected. What I'm showing you here is a continuous GPS network. It's a network that is primarily stations funded by the National Science Foundation, this EarthScope program. I think Harry mentioned that I worked uh, for this program in Boulder. We're very proud of it. Um, all of these dots are a GPS, a single GPS station. I'm going to show you those in a second. What's interesting is when you look at the distribution, you realize that this thing really wasn't built for water, for one, if that's where we're going at. Um, almost all the stations are sitting in the west and then here in Alaska. It was built to study crustal deformation, so plate tectonics, earthquakes, stress buildup in the crust. All of, and also, actually, sort of volcanic systems. So there's this huge investment, $150 million, um, and then ongoing sort of uh, operations and maintenance to study one thing. And what I want to talk about is how this huge investment in one part of science actually is useful in a completely different area. So we're going to focus in here to California. So here are the stations with their little names. Each, each station has a four-character four ID. Um, this one is P298. It's sitting close to Parkfield, California, which you may know it's where these recurring earthquakes occur. So P298, it, I did a lot of research to come up with this one. This is the singly most picturesque station in sight in the entire, uh, entire network. Although I have heard from the person who actually um, manages this that it no longer looks like that. What was happening is this is rangeland, and all the the cattle would come up and then they'd rub up against this. And so they had to build a big fence here, which was too bad. But this won't look like this if you went out and, and sought out this station. But what you have, you've got a GPS antenna. It's not like the one in your phone. It's very impressive right up there. It's covered by a radome. It's tracking GPS signals from satellites that are overhead. Um, I won't go into all the, the, uh, the engineering behind that, but essentially it's a positioning system to allow us to determine very, very precisely where that antenna is located. There's some other stuff here, you know, power and telemetry to, to send the signal out. That antenna, which is sitting right there, is attached to that. So the most important part of the station is not what you see at the top, but it's what's underground. It's like a lot of things in life. Um, and what, we've, what it is, this is, monument is actually doing is, so it's anchored at depth. It's 10 meters, roughly, so 30 feet and then decoupled from the top 10 feet or so. So all the things you might associate with sort of soil 
moving at this, the, the, this top surface, maybe temperature or water, this station will not see. It's coupled at depth. And that's very important for the precision that we're getting out of this. So I'm going to show you now what the actual data look like from this one station. What we have, so 10 years of data from 2006 to 2016. This is all up to date. Um, and we've got displacements. These are in centimeters, so plus or minus six centimeters, maybe that much. And up northeast, so each component of motion. So in the up, what you see, I mean, the most sort of striking thing is it looks like there's some sort of annual signal here. We'll get back to that. And maybe this station does look like it's rising somewhat. But the, the real story is in the horizontal. This station is moving very rapidly to the north and very rapidly to the negative east, which is west. So that actually makes a lot of sense. When you look at this station in the context of what all the other stations are doing, the velocities of these stations, so this is a beautiful map. I mean, this is what that network was built to study, the horizontal velocity field of the crust. And you see amazing things, this amazing shearing, very, very high velocities here on the coast, transitioning to almost no velocity inland. There's a reason we have earthquakes, and this is it. And then up here, you see this rotation. There's a subduction zone here, and the crust is accommodating. So we have all kinds of beautiful stuff happening here. But that's not what the talk of today is about. We're interested in a component of the GPS that no one really looked at seriously because they considered it to be contaminated. So here we are. It's this signal. It's the, it's the vertical signal. All of this stuff was not something that anyone modeled, so it was essentially thrown out. So the question, I want to show you what this is, and for that, I'm going to take you to Utah. So I had to search far and wide for a station that actually had the particular properties I'm going to show you. This is a very uncharacteristic station. Here it is. It's actually, so it's sitting down here. This is the Wasatch Mountains, and it's sitting down in a drainage basin. This is internal drainage. The water doesn't go anywhere once it stops here. Here's a zoom blow up. There's some agriculture, and we're looking at this station, P105. You can kind of see it's sitting next to a water control dam right here. So this river comes down and is just stopped. These are the, the, the vertical um, displacements of that station. It's about the same time period, and so about 10 centimeters total uh, displacement. And this signal looks like no one you'll ever see anywhere else. I mean, this is completely unique. But I want to show you why it looks the way it does. So we're going to zoom in. Here's the station. A couple kilometers away is this lake. And this is, so I love Google Earth. You can just dial in whatever time you want. So I zoomed it over to the, the latest picture it had. March 23, 2014. Lake is pretty much full. Here's the station at some low stand. I should say it's, it's subsiding. So cut to, to take it back in time to here, September 14th, 2011, the, the lake is quite a bit emptier. And in fact, that station is showing a, it's higher up. And then go back yet again, several more years to December 31st, 2005, that lake is almost empty and the station is close to its high, I mean, the station is near its high point. So the question is, what is actually going on here? And, and for this, I'm actually going to, I have to thank my son who's in the audience here. He's a fourth grader, and he loaned me his four-square ball. Um, here it is. Okay. So imagine this is Earth, and imagine you have some water, or just anything, but in this case, a lot of water, and you're going to put it on Earth. So the gravitational pull of Earth is going to pull that water in. Essentially, you're going to have the Earth's going to do something like this. It deforms. I don't know if you can see that. So you put a load on the Earth. It deforms elastically. 
When you remove the load, it rebounds. And this, you can sort of do wherever you put the load on Earth, it's doing this globally. We do not tend to think of the Earth as an elastic solid, but it is. It's like a rubber ball or a rubber block. And over the timescales we're looking at, that is almost the entire response of the Earth. At these, these you know, length scales, Earth is simply a rubber ball. This is what it looks like. This is actually, if you were to graph it, this is the response. You put a point load, a load being you know, some water pulled by gravity, and you get this kind of response. All right, so back to our station. I've now detrended these, these vertical signals, and I've decomposed them into two things. One is this, just the seasonal component, and then here, the residual, which I've smoothed out. So this is a longer-term component. This is what that station is doing, boiled down to its essence. And if we were to interpret it in terms of water mass, we would say, okay, this is some sort of periodic annual motion due to seasonal changes in water mass somewhere around this station. We don't know exactly where. And then here, this orange thing, so wherever this green line is above zero, we're looking at this long-period elastic rebound, so removal of water mass, and where you get that green line below zero, you have subsidence due to addition of water mass. So water pushes the earth down. These GPS stations are responding to that, that change in, uh, in load. So now I'm going to take you, here's our station, P298. I want to give you the entire US. So this is all the data we have, every single green time series. So this long period uh, motion of every station in the U.S. just plotted on top, and it's a mess. I mean, there's just a lot of stuff in there. You can't do very much with that. However, if you were just to take one time sl slice out of here and unpack it and see what it looked like, this is what you get. So I'm taking here 2011. You remember this is when Lake Oroville was bank full, and now I'm just going to take... So you look, all these stations which are showing subsidence... They're here in blue, so the scale is a little small, a little hard to read, but vertical displacements, the blues are subsidence. I relate that to water. And then the reds are rebound loss of water. And what you see here in October 2011 is tremendous amount of subsidence across the entire West. You go to Texas, sort of a different story here. Looks like some rebound, and then something going on in New England area. All right, another time slice. Let's just move to October of last year. It's very much the opposite situation. You see all of this displacement, this rebound, this uplift here in the West, and then sort of an opposite thing going on here in Texas, and then something going along in the Great Lakes. So I'm going to show you a movie of what this looks like over time, because you really you can't get the full flavor of it just by looking at a couple of time slices. So here we go. This is just going ahead by month. And what I want you to notice is how the Earth is almost breathing. I mean, you have these waves of change going across, and each one of these stations is independently processed. Each one is just doing its own thing. And even though there's noise in here, you see very consistent things. So here we are in 2011, you see all of a sudden transitioning out of that period, and we're now getting, you just see waves of activity, and all of a sudden we start to now move into drought, and it just keeps going. All right, so that right there is 
a sort of living picture of our Earth is seen through GPS. And it's not anything that people really thought about until this drought came along and all of a sudden we realized there's some signals in there that we hadn't been paying any attention to. And what you saw there was stripped of the seasonal. There was no seasonal motion. That's just how the Earth is responding over long periods. So I want to take you now back to the drought specifically, and I'm going to give you the same sort of time slices, but this time just for this subset of stations in the West. And what you see is this March, this is August of 2011, 12, 13, 14. And clearly this, this long-term trend toward uplift, which we're interpreting as loss of water. And you may ask, could it be something else? And we're saying this is water. It turns out that the only thing that has this sort of magnitude is surface pressure, sort of air pressure. And that's, there is a seasonal component there, which we're really not looking at. But most of that's occurring on the timescale of storms, high-pressure systems. You may get a big setup. And right now we're in a Santa Ana because there's a high-pressure system. You'll actually see that in the GPS, but it's over short periods. What we're looking at here are the longer-term trends. The other thing I want to point out, the sharp-eyed among you will notice that there are a number of stations in here which are doing exactly not what the other ones are doing. So they're all subsiding, and in fact, at tremendous rates. And what's going on there is not the elastic rebound story. These are stations that are sitting in California's Central Valley or other agricultural areas. They're sitting on top of aquifers, and what are farmers doing? They're just pumping the heck out of these aquifers, especially... You see what happens. This is when the, the, the drought hits. Whatever they've been pumping before, now they've doubled down. And California is one of the, in fact, it's the only state that actually does not monitor, at least not until recently, has not monitored any water extraction. And whatever you want to call them, whether it's big ag or just your small farmer, has resisted this fiercely because it's a public good that they've simply been able to take and use. Um, they're essentially mining water because this water is not being put back. And you see this both as this long-term subsidence, so you're taking water out and you just have the pore pressure, the pore space collapsing, but also the stations outside are seeing this as a rebound. So at the same time that these stations are going down, in fact, they are lifting up because of the elastic rebound. It's just such a small signal, you can't see it. Okay, so here we are. We're back to our GPS stations, and we've stripped out all the ones that are, being, that are over these aquifers because they would sort of contaminate what I'm about to show you. What we want to do is go from these vertical displacements to the actual water load. We want to know what the water is. I mean, this is nice. It's a very pretty picture, but what a water manager would want, uh, what, we, what we would want to know is how much water is associated. So the way we do this is... I'm going to do just a little thought experiment. Um, imagine a single GPS station and some load, some distance from it. So the response of that station or that point on Earth, the displacement to a load at some distance can be shown here. It's not, the details aren't important. This is just distance from that load and then some measure of vertical displacement. And what you see is that it's sort of most of this is just a drop off. As you go away, you're less sensitive to the load. So if I knew what the load was, that one station could tell me how far it was, but it couldn't tell me where it is. So we have this ambiguity. If you just have one station, like that P298 we were looking at, it can't tell us where the water is. In fact, it can't even tell us how much. But imagine you had a number of stations. You can actually triangulate where a particular load would be because each of these stations has a unique response. So now back for a second, 
I'm going to take the prop out again. So imagine you had an earth and you just covered it with GPS stations. So whatever load you placed on it, those GPS stations would actually allow you to find the corresponding, so whatever the displacement is, they could find the corresponding force, or in this case, the water load. And that's exactly what we do. There's a lot of math involved in it, which is really not worth even seeing. But essentially, these are problems that, that colleagues at Scripps actually built for doing things like earthquake studies and crustal deformation. We're using the same tools for doing loading from water. So it's, again, a nice, um, a nice unexpected uh, use of these scientific tools. All right, so enough of that. I want to show you now the corresponding water change to this set of vertical displacements. This was a very early model. It's not nearly as high resolution as, as we're able to do. But the main points are there. The salient points are we're looking at, so this is loading. It's equivalent water thickness. So how much water has been added or taken away from a given, little, given grid block? And it ranges from actually close to a meter of water loss right here in the central um, Sierras to, in fact, there's no, no place here where there's a water excess. And what you see is the, the primary loss is in the Sierras, but it's also in other elevated regions. So this is the Wasatch Front right here in Utah. Um, Cascades coming down here. There's uh, Tucson and some, some higher area here. There's actually this. If you know your geography, that's actually where Lake Mead is. So this is picking up uh, uh, loss of water in Lake Mead. Another interesting thing is that behind the mountains, so in the mountains' rain shadow, you don't get much of a change. And this makes sense when you think these are very arid regions. If you had a drought that came in and, let's say, wiped out 50% of your precipitation, there wasn't a lot of water to begin with there. You know, 50% of a couple inches of rain is not a big change, whereas 50% of feet of rain in the mountains is a big change. So that's why we really don't see much going on back here in the rain shadow. But this also gives you this idea, I mean, back to the, the title, you know, when the rains fail, when the water goes away right here, in fact, it's the mountains that see, it's on these peripheries, the mountains actually see the biggest response because that's where the load, uh, the precipitation load is concentrated. So I can tell you, I, it was <clears throat> very interesting. When we published this, there, were, there was uh, uh, quite a bit of public interest that the drought was definitely in the public's um, view through media. And I tried a lot of different ways to describe sort of how much water this is. So you can take this and then just add up how much water is missing. People like that kind of stuff. And I, I had a lot of ways to, you know, 240 gigatons of water. 240 kilometers, people don't like metric. 56 miles cubed. I mean, to me, that seemed like a lot. Of, that did not register 10 centimeters uniformly. That didn't do it. What actually worked, you have to put it in terms of gallons, and you like to have a big number like trillion in front of it. And when you do that, actually then people take notice. And in fact, so I want to tell you a story about this. Um, I didn't know if I'd have time. It looks like I will. So I grew up in Los Angeles. And uh, those of you who, uh, who spent some time in Los Angeles will know KNX News 70. Um, it's the news and weather radio station. And, and it's, it has a number of radio personalities still today. Uh, so one of the early phone interviews I did was with somebody from KNX. And, you know, I got up, I was actually, he's got some record, you know, he's setting up, I can hear him smoking on his cigarette in the background. And he's setting everything up. And so he starts in, so, so Adrian, wow, 63 trillion gallons, that's a lot of water. 
can you put this in terms that, you know, just the average Joe on the street would understand? <laughs> and before I had a chance to think, you know, like, like how much he said, so, you know, you, like that, you got that stadium down there, Petco Park. How many Petco Parks do you think that is? One or two? And, you know, I, I'm, I'm stunned because it's, it's tens of thousands of Petco Parks, but I don't know how to make the calculation. Petco parks are the way people would like to see this. It's the tens of thousands of Petco parks. So whatever works for you, you know, that's, and whatever works for, for the public, that's what we as scientists really have to communicate, and we do a really poor job of it. So I do want to go a little beyond the West. Um, this is some work that I did for a conference. It's just a little snippet of the work I did for a conference just recently. Um, you already saw some of the results. So I took that and essentially extended it to the West, I mean, the entire U.S., um, some amazing things there. Uh, so I wanna, I'll just show you what the water loads are for these two periods. So this is October 2011, October 2015. So here's 2015, so drought. We're in our drought. Um, and here's the load change. So that's the same map you were seeing before. Slightly different assumptions, but you definitely see this, this loss of water in the West. And then these other things. Florida, it turns out, is in this tremendous drought. Um, well, they're coming out of it right now. It's easily seen. Maybe you guys heard about this massive floods in North South Carolina. There they are. Something going on in Texas. So here's the picture you've already seen. That is corresponding to October 2015. The lake's about the same. Here's Texas. Same exact time, Red River, which has basically taken this entire watershed, it's all dumping through here, is flooding tremendously. In fact, Texas overall saw floods that were you know, among the greatest that they've had, close to a meter of rain over several days. I mean, just unbelievable amounts of rain. All right, so well, what happened back in 2011? Here's the corresponding load change. This is kind of interesting. So here is our bank full Lake Oroville, what's happening in Texas at this time? That. And I can tell you, if you were to Google drought in Texas in 2011, this is the only live cow you'll find. Any of those pictures. It's just dead cow after dead cow. This was a tremendous traumatic experience for Texas. They were in the middle of a drought, and it was, it was sort of this question about you know, what's going on. But think about this. We have a California system. I mean, we're talking about climate change. We know it's coming. We don't know how exactly, how fast, or how we're gonna adapt. And California has already done a lot of adaptation prior to, well, California's climate has been changing. We've built this tremendous infrastructure. We're moving water from the north to the south, and we're adding to it. Well, what happens in a future where maybe that isn't enough? Maybe we could start talking about these sort of telelinkages, these teleconnections between places in the US, or maybe with Canada or Mexico, that are out of phase. And you could imagine we would export water to Texas when we've got too much and vice versa. This is a big engineering project, but compared with building desalinization plants, perhaps that's the way to go. So I want to finish up with, with a couple of lessons learned. I already gave you one of them. It was a story I wasn't expecting to tell. Um, here, here's another one. And again, it has to do with connecting science to people. So this is the UC San Diego annual report, and I want to point out my collaborator, Duncan Agnew. 
And here we are looking at a GPS station, which is on the top of Mount Soledad. So if any of you want to see a GPS station, this is not the, the, the nicest example of it, but, but it's essentially what's there. It's sitting up uh, right as you crest, um, you know, going over toward the cross. And here we are understanding and protecting the planet. This is UC San Diego is one of its big uh, strategic initiative themes. Here's our you know, story, and here's the title, Rise of the West, Uplifting Story is a Cautionary Tale. And I want to point that out because I went and Googled all the various stories that were you know, published on this, and it was just this litany of titles like High and Dry, GPS Offers New Way to Measure Drought, or Drought Has Had an Uplifting Effect, or how about Drought Is Weighing You Down? Nope, it's lifting you up. Everybody's piling on out there. And in fact, I mean, it doesn't matter what kind of a connection you had to the reporter you were talking with. You, know, you could, you know, great person. Once it gets to the editor, the editor doesn't care about you, probably doesn't care about your science. All the editor really cares about is what kind of title are you going to deliver. And sure enough, we saw this time and again. So, you know, it's a message to everyone here. Just beware if you're in this situation. If Fox News puts you on, just whatever comes out the other end is not going to be what came in, even if the person that was, was, was interviewing you was, was perfectly friendly and fine. Um, and with that, I just want to say thank you very much. Uh, thank you for coming. How about the impact of uh, petroleum extraction? Do you pick that up? So the question is about the impact of petroleum and ex extraction and whether we can see it. In fact, let's say we go to Oklahoma, uh, a number of the companies that are doing mining there are having private companies build GPS stations for them, continuous stations to monitor what's going, down, what's going on down below. So absolutely, although I would say that in California, the, the primary production is, well, it used to be in the LA basin. Um, it's up, sort of tucked in, I forget what part of uh, sort of the, the southern Central Valley up against the mountains. And there are almost no sta GPS stations there. In fact, they were built, the GPS stations were built to avoid as much as possible places where there was active extraction. But yes, you can definitely see it. Yes, yeah, so the question is about isostatic rebound, the term, the, the similarity to what happens when glaciers melt. So there, when glaciers melt, there, there are two effects. Uh, one of which is just and it's actually happening in Greenland right now, that 240 gigaton measure I, I showed you is about how much water is being lost annually from Greenland. I mean, I, whether or not you've heard this from other sources, I can tell you, I work with these data, the Greenland ice sheet is collapsing right now. And uh, 240 gigatons is about the, the right amount. And it's accelerating. So what happens when that water comes off is two things. One is the Earth rebounds, rebounds elastically very quickly. And that's what we've been looking at. And that is part of the isostatic rebound. There's also this long-term viscoelastic effect. So as you lift up the load, the mantle, which is the viscous solid, begins to flow back in and fill in. So you know, the, the last glaciation we had in North America, we're still seeing the isostatic rebound from that going on. And it's called post-glacial rebound right now. So um, this is one effect of two. And... Um, it's part of the, a bigger story. So the, the question is about the GPS stations themselves and the calibration. Um, 
all of the stations that we use are tied back to the terrestrial reference frame. So this is, this is a set of stations. It's under a, maybe 100 or so that are spread over, the, over Earth, each of which is tracking not so much the local deformation but plate tectonics. And all of these are tied to a celestial reference frame, and it's, it's NASA is the, the group that does this. So there are, there are fiducial sites that have a number of different um, measurements on them, everything from stack tracking quasars to satellites in orbit. Um, and all of these, these various measures tie together. So in terms of calibration, what we can tell you is that the reference frame itself is now known to within a few millimeters in terms of, of its position. And then each of these GPS stations, um, the data comes in independently, they're processed, and then they're rotated into this frame. So when we talk about calibration, really, when we talk about error, the, the primary thing we see on a daily basis is that there is definitely jitter. But over time, um, that, uh, that goes away. And then the stations that are nearby each other essentially behave in the same way. So um, the calibration is a very lengthy process that involves a lot of work that I'm not involved in. But the question's about uh, any kind of adjustments that you have to make because you're attached. I mean, the station is actually anchored at depth. So it turns out that at these, if, if you're only going down, you know, whatever it is here, 30 feet, or even it could be hundreds of feet, um, the displacement is it's not measurable, the difference in displacement between the surface and down below. It's definitely the case that as you go down, you get a different displacement field. So if you were measuring several kilometers below the surface, you get a different kind of field. So it's a good, a good point and a good question, but we're okay with, with these stations. The initial interviews that a few of us were doing, Duncan and I in particular, Duncan was very adamant that we explore the, the earthquake connection. And there was a paper that had been published that said, ah, you know, the, um, we think there's some change on the San Andreas. And Duncan was insistent that we show that there's nothing, prom you know, there's nothing that's uh, um, impactful. And, and that's what we put in this paper. And so interview after interview, I'm telling people, no, you know, there's just not enough. This, this can't have any, you know, it's not going to have any change. And then Two days later, the South Napa earthquake goes, and all of Napa's wineries lose, you know, vineyards and bottles and and, and these are the pictures. So it looks pretty bad, and that's actually when Fox News came to interview me. Um, <laughs> and you'll like this. They they asked me questions about my work, and then the answers I was giving, they would then feed me a question that wasn't the question they fed me about the other person's work that wasn't mine. And this is the question would be about that person's work. And I'd say, yeah, yeah, that sounds, that's pretty reasonable. I mean, but anyway, um, so after the earthquake, we started taking a look more seriously. And so the drought does have an impact. It changes the stress state in the crust. Um, the changes are on the order of what the seasonal loading is, uh, which has been shown to have some small amount of change in seismicity. So it's really not big triggering potential, but it's enough if you have some faults that are close to, um, to, to failure, it could potentially put it over. But uh, we're not seeing any uptick in earthquakes. So this is a question about how long it would take to actually replace 10 centimeters, let's say you know, two and a half, whatever inches, across the western US with additional rainfall. Dan Kahn, who is one of my collaborators, is very interested in exactly that question. In fact, 
he's, he's keen on us publishing the paper that says California came out of its drought on September 13th, 2016. So in a way, there is a way to measure as these you know, storm systems come in or dumping snow, dumping rain, they are delivering water that is compensating for this loss. I think the real question, though, is how much of that is going to replace the groundwater? How much might be running off um, in a matter of weeks or months or even a season? So um, a really good, solid couple years of rain and all of this, it, it's essentially in excess, would get this back to, to normal. But I think the problem is we're looking at a climate that is no longer... Um, well, maybe it was never that predictable, but where it's seemingly going into a phase, warmer temperatures mean that when you put snow on the Sierras, actually when you, when you dump a storm on the Sierras, a lot more of it's coming down as rain and not as snow, and that's hurting us because the Sierras are where our summer, the snowpack is, is actually our major reservoir. It's not those, those reservoirs we see. So. Adrian, thank you very much. It's really You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.